JMV here with Brian Kahn from Floors to Your Home. Fans, if you're shopping for flooring of any kind, you need to check these guys out. You're going to have the most incredible, totally hassle-free shopping experience ever. JMV, we really appreciate you saying that. That's our goal every day, to offer our customers a quick, easy, and hassle-free experience at all of our Floors to Your Home locations. Fans, it works like this. You see the product you like. It's going to be cheaper than anywhere else. That's for sure. Then you can immediately take it home with you or have it installed. That's right. No hassle, no special order. Just see it, buy it, and take it home, or have it installed. Like three rooms of hardwood, laminate, or waterproof flooring starting at just 349 and they have everything in stock. I'm doing my whole house, and believe me, this is the best shopping experience you'll ever have. Three convenient locations, Avon, Noblesville, and Brookville Road. Who gives the quickest, easiest, and most hassle-free buying experience? Floors to your home. That's who. On the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline, pro football focus, Brad Spielberger is with us. Hello, Brad. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Normally this time of year, there's excitement, right? you got teams that are excited, but you also have incredibly disappointed teams. And here's where I sit right now. I'm being sneaky. I want you to tell me and the folks out there listening that are Colts fans, how many possibilities might there be for an elite-level wide receiver? who has become disgruntled and once out, how many of those opportunities, and maybe it doesn't happen, but just off the top of your head, who might fit that mold right now as we get past the postseason and then into the NFL offseason? I think it becomes more and more common as each offseason goes on, as these players, especially at that position in particular, feel more empowered to ask for shorter contracts, stronger contracts, to um, you know really drive a hard bargain. And you saw you know A.J. Brown obviously forces his way out of Tennessee. Even Debo Samuel, who did get extended, requested a trade. You know Marquise Brown requested a trade. Like you go on and on down the list, you always get someone to come through. So. I would not be surprised in the slightest if T. Higgins in Cincinnati at some point requests a trade this offseason. I almost almost expect it. I think he'll get franchise tagged. I think conversations will not go particularly well. And I think he will ask for a trade at some point. You know, I don't know if he gets it, but I think that will happen. Then I look to Devontae Adams in Las Vegas. Still haven't gotten done yet there with the head coaching search. If they don't hire Antonio Pierce, I think he's going to ask for a trade. Even if they do, uh, I think he might ask for a trade. So, yeah, I think you're always going to see it. Um, depending on the situation of what the quarterback looks like, if the offensive coordinator is not someone the, co- the players typically like playing for, or if they just feel like, hey, I'm a number one, but I'm trapped on a roster where I'm a number two. Like, There's all these different kinds of reasons, and their production and their pay is tied to other people, maybe more than any other position in the sport. Um, and, and so, yeah, uh, long answer short, it's going to happen, and I think it could be a handful of good players this offseason. So Brad Spielberger, Pro Football Focus on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Yeah, I was thinking last night, I know there have been some reports out there, he was injured, didn't play, but A.J. Brown, maybe. It just it seems like even if you have a good season, it can all go haywire fairly quickly, and especially at that position, these elite-level guys all of a sudden – kind of wiggle free. It just makes me wonder because around here, I think you and I both agree that the Colts are still very short in that particular area. Yeah, I think you need to add one piece there. I think it would go a long, long way. You know, again, they're good there, but are they great there? Do they have a difference maker that can truly elevate the entire offense that also can therefore then make the job easier for everyone else below them in the pecking order? Like, like T. Higgins going back to him is a good example where, 
you saw the flash. You saw he was going to be a good player. He was close to 1,000 yards as a rookie, I want to say, even with you know Joe Burrow missing time there. But you drop into Jamar Chase, who sets the record for the most receiving yards by a Bengal ever in his rookie season. And T. Higgins still produces, still puts up 1,000-plus yards, and gets seven, eight touchdowns that second year. But you just saw that, okay, this is really the dynamic we're looking for. And I do think in a similar manner that would go a long way in Indianapolis. Also, we're talking, you know, trades and veterans. There is going to be a receiver on the board when the Colts are picking that could be a number one receiver on day one of the NFL year next year. This class is is ridiculously loaded uh, in the draft. Well, I was going to ask you that next. What would you think to upgrade in the fashion in which the Colts need to in that area? Is this something where they go directionally to the draft? Do you lean on something in free agency? Because historically speaking, this is not something certainly high dollar that the Colts nor Chris Ballard have thought about doing. Is it a trade market possibility? What What do you think is the most probable option the Colts might take? I think they've shown recently that they want to get these rookie contract receivers in. You know, they obviously have not used the first yet, but 34th overall pick for Pittman, uh, was it 50 for Alec Pierce, and then I think 67 early third for Josh Downs, something like that. Uh, so, so obviously there, there's a willingness to use early draft capital, day two capital on that position. I just sit here and look at this class, and maybe it is still second round, and I still think you could find a difference-making player in the second round. Maybe that's where like an A.D. Mitchell from Texas falls. Um, I think Keon Coleman of Florida State probably is a second-round prospect at this point. Um, but, but like in the first round, like Brian Thomas Jr. from LSU, I think could be there in the late teens and is a really, really talented player, um, can win deep, can take the top off the defenses. I think he kind of has that, that Justin Jefferson to the Jamar Chase, uh, you know, where everyone's talking about the league neighbors, as they should be. Neighbors is an elite prospect. But Brian Thomas Jr. is very, very good um, in his own right. So anyway, I can sit here and rattle off names, but – there are players in the, in the top 100 um, that I think come in and make an impact uh, you know, right out of the gate. All right. Did anything surprise you at all about the absolute – because it was already ongoing for a lengthy period of time. Anything surprise you about the complete and utter meltdown that basically put an end to the season as we watched last night Philadelphia on the road to Tampa Bay? You know, the one thing that stuck out to me was they obviously hadn't been executing particularly well. They haven't had an answer to the blitz, and Todd Bowles had a great game plan on that side of the ball. On defense, they've always been struggling all year with, like, you know, giving up big plays, being exposed by slot receivers. But the shocking thing to me was I'm not sure the first guy to the ball made the tackle a single time last night. It was one of the poorest tackling efforts I've ever seen um, for a proud, veteran-led, you know, a team that has a lot of pride in, in every single week. And they had – 17 missed tackles last night per our charting. The most of any team in the playoffs this year, second most going back the last three years. I, it looked like a team that was not motivated, didn't want to be there, doesn't believe in the coaching staff. Like It, it was different than, hey, they're not executing and they're not playing at a high level and they're injured. It was these guys are checked out and don't really care, which I was, I was shocked to see. They made clearly a change with defensive coordinator um, during the season. And then in that first year, uh, offensive coordinator taking the place of Shane Steichen and Jonathan Gannon, defensive coordinator, went out to Arizona. Coordinator, I should say, went out to Arizona. So is that where we start trying to track down the significant piece that went wrong in the latter portion of this season for the Eagles? 
it's pretty funny to me. Uh, Matt Patricia comes in and they play largely lesser opponents and we're worse in every single defensive category statistically. I mean, I'm not sure how many times the guy has to fail uh, for us to know he's not good at it. Uh, like he, he was, he was Bill Belichick defense coordinator. He obviously was not a secret sauce. He was terrible in Detroit. Uh, like, I, I just don't get it. Sean Desai has been good for a long time. I think on a bad Bears roster was super creative, did a lot of different things to get the most out of his talent he possibly could. I know it hasn't been great. I'm not saying it was going well early on in the year, but that particular demotion for Sean Desai, to replace him with that guy in particular, really rubbed me the wrong way. And I just I don't agree with it. I know I'm not in the locker room or in the building. I don't know the entire dynamic, but – it obviously didn't work. I mean, I mean, Patricia, as always, was terrible, um, and that's why we're having this conversation. Now, he's a reserve guy, and he was that way when he was successful. But when you look as reserved as Jalen Hurts did, he, he looked uh, reserved to a point where he was basically disassociated with everybody on that bench last That was a bad look, and I know it's a, a huge disappointment, and you're going to say, well, you know, how's the guy supposed to look or feel? But that was just a bad look all the way around. He had teammates coming over trying to rattle his cage a little bit. I, I don't know if that's something that the offseason and a reboot of any kind just fixes that simply. Yeah, I don't know. I, I do think he's a guy the team galvanizes around. He was. He was, I guess, like you could have you know, maybe seen him barking at guys and trying to motivate. But you mentioned the A.J. Brown thing. I mean, they're like best friends, have been really close for a long time. There were rumblings of issues there you know, beyond just the injury. Hurts himself, I think this is where I come to it is, I think Hurts, we're, we're going to hear in the next couple of days, he's getting a, a knee scope or some sort of – you know, arthroscopic yeah. surgery in his knee. He obviously the bro- uh, the dislocated middle finger on his throwing hand. Like, I think he more was just like battered down, broken, and just defeated. I hear what you're saying. Um, I just, you know, I the, the, you can't hear enough good things about how, how he is the leader on that team. Maybe you need a little bit more fire and don't always be composed and don't always be, uh, you know, so level-headed. It's obviously good most of the time. But, you know, even Tom Brady was screaming his lungs out sometimes. So I hear what you're saying. That's what comes back to me of like, I, I don't know if there's belief in his coaching staff right now. I, I really don't. I, you know, and I was fair a little bit early and I said, hey, last year, that approach personality wise that he had, everybody described as absolutely perfect, calm, cool, collective calculated all that and then you know when you're going through an end of a season debacle as we saw that team going through at least looks completely different on the sideline then no it's fair that's a good point and that's kind of you know the, the funny thing about football in really every respect is like when you're winning you know i got to tie to a different storyline but like brian dable in new york there's now a new hit piece coming out every it seems like every morning He's always been that guy. There's, a, there's an article about how, like, Colt McCoy had, like, PTSD from getting hazed by Brian Dable 10 years ago. Um, you know, and people wonder why it took him so long to be a head coach. He's always been that guy. But when they were winning last year and he was getting coach of the year honors, everyone's smiling and happy. And now, you know, they lose a bunch of games. They get injured on both sides of the football, you know, are respected and highly touted defensive coordinator, clearly does not like him and forced his way out. And that was an awkward, like, standoff for a couple days there. It is funny where, like, at the flip of a switch, like, things can go from so good, you're 10-1, and one, you made the Super Bowl last year, you're, you're a fun young roster, to now, I mean, they've had the worst, week 11 to, to today, they've had the worst stretch of any team in the NFL. It really is bizarre. So Brad Spielberger, a PFF on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. So people around here, certainly in year number one, everybody here that's a Colts fan, they, they've loved what Shane Steichen has done 
How much of what we saw crumble in Philly, especially offensively, was because Shane Steichen took the play-calling duties and brought him as the head coach here in year number one in Indy? It's got to be viewed as a positive. It really does. Because not only the play-calling and the sequencing, which I do think was off, um, you know, but also like the lack of adjustment. I mean, the amount of articles have been written going back to like the entire year. I, I mean, there was a um, next gen stats, put out a bunch of stats on the Eagles against the blitz in week two. Um, and just talk about how you know, there, there were not hot routes in, in the route trees and in the concepts of, Hey, if we are going to get pressured, who is the quick out to get the ball, you get the ball to, um, do you throw into the blitz? Do you have some sort of outlet or check down for Jalen Hurts? And you saw it again last night. You're watching Todd Bowles with like seven dudes in the line of scrimmage. Obviously, someone's going to come on a blitz. Um, and I do think he had a great game plan. And then all the receivers are 10 yards downfield. No one's even looking at Jalen Hurts. Like it was, it's just the, the lack of adjustment to me. Like forget like scheme of a play or, or, or play sequencing in terms of like, you know, when you go run or pass or play action and all that stuff. But just the lack of adjusting at a fundamental level of like, let's fly the protection, let's keep the tight end in, let's keep DeAndre Swift in. It was just – it happened week after week after week. It was bizarre. So Brad Spielberger, who is with us, I I want to mention this because this won't make Colts fans very happy. I thought C.J. Stroud was going to be exactly what C.J. Stroud was. I just thought it was going to be later on. I didn't think we were going to see this evolution in his rookie season. How amazing has that been to watch him guide this Houston team? And then what – should we be thinking about within the AFC South for years to come, in your opinion? When you look at Houston, you look at, at Levis and, and what I guess they're going to do at head coach at some point here and you know, to see if Jacksonville can ever discover with Ter- Trevor Lawrence any consistency. What's the AFC South look like, including the Colts now, after watching what Houston has done in a dynamic fashion, really, in the past couple of weeks? It, it really is remarkable. Um, you know, no stage too big. I mean, the best defense in the football this year and, and absolutely carved them up and continues to look good against pressure, which was always the number one knock on C.J. Stroud. He navigates the pocket well. He manipulates the pocket well to kind of, you know, uh, evade pressure with small sidesteps. Like, it's not like he's running around like crazy. Even a lot of those highlight plays where he is avoiding pressure, it's just one quick sidestep or one quick dance to, to move around from a guy um, he's the best deep passer in the NFL per art rating and, and just per traditional stats on throws 20 plus yards downfield. He has the second best completion percentage, the most passing yards, the most yards per attempt. Like he's, he is already in my mind, a top seven quarterback in the NFL and you always will get adjustments. There are every single, especially in this division, the defensive coordinators are going to watch every single drop back and try to identify weaknesses, find new ways to attack him. And, and it will, I mean, he caused him problems, but I just think the way he wins, he's not going to eradicate his success. Like, maybe they'll find some weak, weak points and weak spots of his game. Maybe he loses Bobby Slowick, his offensive coordinator, which is always tough to transition. But, yeah, I, I don't see a scenario where we don't just view him as now a staple top-10 quarterback in the league, as crazy as that sounds. And then for, for the whole division, I think we could be looking at the best division of football in a couple of years. I mean, if the Jaguars write the ship, figure some things out there, um, you know, get the defense in a better spot with their defensive coordinator higher. And then if Anthony Richardson continues to develop in that offense, I think we're looking at three teams. I know Lawrence had a letdown year. I still think he's a, you know, top 10 quarterback in the league as well. Three teams of young teams, a lot of draft capital going forward. 
good cap situation. Jacksonville, not really. But anyway, I, it, we could be talking about like this gauntlet division in the AFC South in, in the near future. I'm going to ask you this, and this is before I let you go, uh, related to that hit on uh, Tyler Higby, the Rams tight end, the other night. Um, and, and now I guess it's been reported that – that resulted in a torn ACL. We know how the NFL now feels, you know, about the the head and the the neck area above the shoulders. Are they going to do anything about the the low hits that we witnessed in that game? And you know, obviously the outcome of the Rams tight end, who's going to have a lot of time in rehab trying to get back for at least the, the midway portion, I would think, to the season coming up next year, maybe earlier than that. But it was a brutal looking hit that resulted in a torn ACL. NFL, do anything about this? To be clear, I'm not saying this to suggest he's dirty. The exact same player had the exact same hit on TJ Hawkinson and tore his ACL and MCL like a month ago. And But unfortunately, I think it's because of the way they're coached. Like you mentioned, they're trying to coach out the high hits out of the game, which we all understand. But the counter is that these guys, yeah, okay, I'm just going to dive at their legs and that'll get them on the ground. And I won't be going, you know, be, be uh, in trouble for going high, defensive receiver, head-to-head contact, all of that. But they talked about it on the broadcast, and, and Gronk used to talk about it a bunch. Like, I'd rather have a guy, you know, dive at my shoulder or above area um, than, than just take out my knees. And so it, it's interesting. Maybe they do – they keep talking about these hip drop tackles, which I think is kind of a whole, you know, conundrum in, in its own right. I get why the concussions is the focus. It should be. Um, but you also don't want guys just diving at knees. But I, I don't blame the player because that is how they're coached to do it. It obviously was successful insofar as the, you know it, it, it got to stop. Um, but yeah, you, you hate to see it. Do we? Um, is there a solution out there? You think? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, I think to a degree, it's a lot of it comes back to launching, like like just just like leaving your feet and launching at a, at a, at a you know uh, offensive player. But that to me is where they need to open the Pandora's box of the hip drop. So for me, I think why. You are seeing so many hip drop tackles, which you know people that haven't read up about it or heard about it. It really is just like when a defender grabs a hold of a guy and then just kind of drops and uses his body weight to just bring a guy down with him. And the issue there, why the league is looking at it, is because that's led to a lot of you know torn knees and, and, and torn ankles and stuff because they're just pulling down on the guy's lower half. My issue is, I, I think if you get rid of that then I think you are going to see more guys just diving at legs. Like, okay, I'm not hip dropping and I'm not hitting someone in the head. I'm just going to be a torpedo and just dive at knees and dive at hips. So it's hard. It's a very, very difficult thing. At the end of the day, football is a violent game. It's a violent sport. It's unfortunate that these things happen. But it's just the more you litigate out, I think the more you – it's like whack-a-mole, right? Like you, you think you fix one thing and it just springs a leak somewhere else. So Brad Spielberger, Pro Football Focus, with us. Speaking of springing leaks, we saw Dallas, and as we mentioned before, Philadelphia doing just that. Any coaching changes there? And where do you think Bill Belichick ends up? Because logically, it's going to be someplace. And where's Jim Harbaugh going to be in play, in your estimation, after that interview yesterday in, in Southern California? Yeah, so I, I do think we're going to get the Dallas news at some point. You know, the, the, the scuttlebutt all year long had been that McCarthy needed to win a playoff game, maybe even win multiple playoff games. He's obviously won 12 regular season games three years in a row, which is cool. And, you know, they did win a playoff game last year, and everyone's getting on Dak. But that first playoff game, obviously the Niners game was not a good game, but that first playoff game I thought Dak was excellent last year. So 
I, I do think they are going to move on. I, I would expect that firing to happen at some point in the near future. Um, Philly, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> if you asked me before last night, I would say there's no way that would happen. But I, I just saw a team that did not feel motivated to play. So maybe there as well. And then I think Belichick goes to Atlanta. I think that's going to get done there. And then I think uh, I think Harbaugh and the Chargers is going to get done. It, it sounds like Harbaugh's been humbled a little bit by the process. He, I think, was asking for, like, full control over the three-man roster and all of these things that, you know, some of the old-school legendary coaches have had for a very long time. But I think you're seeing more and more across the league. Teams want to go away from that. And, and I think Harbaugh probably tried to get it in Minnesota last year. The Vikings didn't want to do it. And, and I think in L.A., He's going to say, all right, you know what? My brother's in Baltimore. He's never had final say over the roster, and it's going pretty well for him there. So I will relent. I'll work with the GM, um, and I think he's going to be with the Chargers. Brad Spielberger of Pro Football Focus. What are you writing about? So, yeah, we're updating the free agent list to 150 players, and I know I keep making the joke every week. Now the cold season is over. I'm counting on the people. Uh, check all that out. You can see a ton of you know data information, depending free agents in Indianapolis. And, of course, also the potential replacements, uh, finding this year's Samson Ebicam and, and all those good things. Let me tell you this, Brad. People around here, because it's been such a long time since anything has been won, uh, they rejoice during the off season. They are going to absolutely pour themselves over your content. You could not have found a better market to be a part of here with free agency. I love it. I appreciate it. Yeah, until Because that's how they feel until they start winning again around here. So I'm yeah, sure you're going to get a lot of hits from locals. Good. Good to hear. Good to hear. Covering the draft as well. So it's about that time. All right, buddy. Thanks, Brad. Thank you. Brad Spielberger of Pro Football Focus on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. Joining us down the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. Now, obviously, big one down in Bloomington later on tonight. You can see this exclusively on Peacock. He and Robbie Hummel have the call. And uh, let me go ahead and tell you the only reason why I have Peacock is for Noah Eagle, who joins us now. Did you know that? That's the only reason. I subscribed last week, and I had you in mind all the way. Can you can you tell my bosses that maybe get my paycheck up a little bit? That'd be great. Yeah, well, if I was going to tell be... your dad that. I, I, that make your dad <laughs> yeah. feel good. <laughs> yeah, direct the pocket would be awesome for me. <laughs> I was going to tell him that for sure. All right, I want to start right here. So, how long have you been in Bloomington in preparation for this? Got here yesterday, so uh, I'm feeling the effects of whatever wind chill it is right now. It, it is legit yeah. for whoever is. Is really not braving the elements. I respect you more because I wish I could just stay inside. I've walked around. It's my first time in Bloomington. So I was like, I got to get a feel. And then five minutes and I'm like, all right, I got a feel. <laughs> it is. Now, where'd you eat? Did you go in, into one of the uh, the noted haunts in Bloomington while you were there? No, not really yet. You know, I, the, the one that was recommended to me above all here was Buffalo Louie's. I've heard yes. that it's outstanding. And so I... At some point, either tonight, maybe after the game, part of me thinks that that's the that's the move. But uh, that was the number one recommendation. Yeah, so at some the, point, I'll make my way. That's there. All, I think the Buffalo Louis owner has a, a daughter that plays against my daughter in eighth grade girls basketball. <laughs> you want me? You need me to talk some trash? Yeah, let me yeah. know. I'll, I'll, say the, I'll do what you got to do. Say, uh, have you played that girl named Laney at Center Grove yet? And uh, did, was she an ass whipper, or, <laughs> yeah. or was she the one out yeah. there that was broke as a joke the entire time? Which one was it? <laughs> 
it. No, I love it. No, Buffalo Wings is, uh, historically speaking, down there, one of the go-tos without question. And this this is one of the go-tos. How special is it for you to be a part of this? You Obviously, Robbie Hummel has been a part of, of them both on and off the floor. But how special is this later on tonight for you? Oh, no, it's going to be unbelievable. You know, my dad has done a lot of games at Assembly Hall, and he told me that it is 1,000% one of the best environments in college basketball. And I think growing up a huge fan of the sport, you know, you remember historic moments. I mean, the, the one that sticks out to me, and certainly not Purdue, Indiana, but, of course, the, the shot against Kentucky, Christian Watford, three ball at the horn, and, and just the energy in the building. And so – I think that is probably in the back of my mind of what we could see tonight just because of the stakes, you know, and then obviously with the rivalry itself, I think back to some great moments of it. I think back all the way to Bob Knight and then all the way through then in my youth when Robbie was playing. He was telling us stories about that this morning. So I'm excited to feel it myself because I know the history that's gone into it. I mean, they played 217 times. When you play anybody 217 times, you're going to have something there, and they clearly have more than just something. They've got something really special. So to, to feel it, to be there on hand, firsthand, is going to be really cool. He is Noah Eagle. He's got the play-by-play call. He, Robbie Hummel, on Peacock. The reason why everybody here has subscribed to Peacock in the last week is because of Noah, and this game certainly he's on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I don't think, Noah, honestly, and you're going to get a heavy dose of this tonight, again, provided that IU plays, and they have been good at home. They have been horrible on the road, but there is no greater, between these two teams, really, I mean, whether you're Mackey Arena, West Lafayette, or in Bloomington, there is no greater home court advantage than you're going to see at Assembly Hall later on tonight for an IU team that is not up to the consistent level of high play of Purdue, but one night in Bloomington on a Tuesday in that atmosphere, that can be a difference maker, and that's one of the courts around college basketball that can be just that. Yeah, and it feels like that's the key in all of this. It's the greatest equalizer, and I think we saw that early in the year against Kansas. They had Kansas on the ropes, and that was a great game that went down to the wire. Kansas ekes out the win, but, you know, Kansas is one of the best teams in the country, and Indiana looked like they were right there with them in terms of talent, in terms of intensity, in terms of everything in that game. They had them, and so I think the, the same principle goes here. Again, it's the number two team in the country now with Purdue dropping down this week in the rankings. But, of course, with the rivalry, of course, with the familiarity with these two teams, you know, these two coaches – both at their alma maters, which I love. You know, I, I, it's one thing to have the rivalry, and it's great, all that. When you've got a guy who played at Indiana and played in the rivalry, and you've got a guy who played at Purdue and played at the rivalry, and now are coaching it, it just means that much more to both of them. So there, there are all these added layers. But to your point, Indiana's been great at home this year. The only loss was to that Kansas team, so they're 9-1 at Assembly Hall. They've struggled on the road. I saw it last week. I did the game at Rutgers, and – just as they struggle to keep the ball, you know, they turned it over a ton and missed free throws, but you you kind of eliminate those mental mistakes, those very curable issues, and they could have won that game. And so, and that was what Mike Woodson told me last week, and I'd imagine as we get ready to go to shoot around today, he's going to do the same thing. He'll basically say, look, last year and this year on the road, a couple bounces, a couple eliminations of mistakes, mental errors, and we win those games, and it's a completely different story of what the season looks like. I think it's the same deal. You know, right now, one and two in true road games, but 
it doesn't really tell the story of, of the type of team that they are, in my opinion. I think that they're capable, and as long as they take care of their business at home, all you need to do is steal a couple road games here and there. You don't need to be perfect. You just need to take care of your business at home, steal a couple here and there, and you get into the dance, and that's all you can ask for. Get into the dance, and then we know that chaos ensues from there. So they're more than talented enough. They're plenty talented to match up with this Purdue team, and they're one of the few teams that has legitimate size to go up against Zach Eady, which I think is important. So, Noah Eagle of Peacock later on tonight, 6.30 pregame coverage, 7.00 p. is that tip time from Assembly Hall in Bloomington. That is Purdue and IU. You mentioned the difference between on the road and at home, and there has been a huge difference for IU. And you also talk about the – eliminating the mental errors and you saw one in that Rutgers game with Xavier Johnson that a six-year guy you just can't do and since that point in time he's seen a lot of bench time they got a win on Friday and then Purdue got a win at home against Penn State coming off a loss of their own last Tuesday night on the road in Lincoln Nebraska it seems like this is a great time if you're going to have a January game to have these two heated rivals meeting on one of the coldest days so far of the year in Bloomington, Indiana. It just sounds perfect, college basketball-wise. It just, yeah, it just feels like a Big Ten showdown, yes. heavyweight showdown right. in a lot of ways. Like it, it has all the makings of it, which I think is huge. I do think the Xavier Johnson storyline is fascinating. You know, obviously, he came back with the intention of being a leader on this team, with the intention of finishing his college career on a high note, and what happened the other day when, to your point, he was on the bench for the majority of the game against Minnesota and what was a really nice win for this team, I actually think it had less to do with him. You know, I think the initial idea of not starting him was a lot of what happened last week at Rutgers, but I think it had less to do with him and had more to do with Gabe Cups and the great defense that he played. You know, he didn't go out there and score, but he had a couple rebounds. He wasn't shy, so the defense had to honor him, and he played some stout defense. And I think Mike Woodson's been, been willing to praise Gabe Cups and the job he's done as a freshman to go out there and kind of just play with no fear. And so I'm curious because this is different, right? Minnesota was a great team. They've been playing really well, and they've been at the top of the conference for a reason. But this is Purdue, and this is Purdue, Indiana. And in a game like this, experience does matter because you know what to expect in a heated rivalry game. And Xavier Johnson has been with this program now for a couple of years. He's played in this rivalry before. And even before that, when he was at Pitt, he played in rivalry games. So he knows what that's all about. Versus Gabe Cups, look, he's played in big games, certainly through his youth in high school, as has every guy on both these teams. But he hasn't played in this game yet. And I think that is a difference. So if Xavier Johnson can get out there and whatever minutes he's given play well, I think we'll likely see more of him. You know, Trey Galloway is going to have to be big for the Hoosiers. And on the other side, look, we know Zach Eady is going to be Zach Eady, even when he has an off day. He still can have a, a rough day at the, the office, so to speak, and still go out there and give you 17 and 12. So I'm not worried about his production. He's a walking double-double. I think that the key every game for this Purdue team is Braden Smith and Fletcher Lawyer. I mean, they've taken massive steps forward this year as sophomores, massive steps. And I think that's what has – really raised the ceiling of this team overall and probably raised the floor if we're being more realistic. But if they're going to go out there and they play the games that they've had in big games so far this year, think about Fletcher Lawyer against Arizona, Alabama, you know, or not Alabama, but Arizona, and earlier in the year he had a couple big games in big moments. And then Braden Smith 
it feels like always is meeting the moment this year. If they do that, that's what makes Purdue extra dangerous versus an IU team that's going to need to get contributions from pretty much everybody. He is Snowy Eagle. He's got you covered on Peacock later on tonight with Robbie Hummel with Purdue and IU from Bloomington round number one. You are so right about Fletcher Lawyer, too. I was talking, Rob Blackman's a friend of mine, the voice of the Boilermakers on the Purdue Radio Network, and I had mentioned to him, I, I, I feel that Fletcher Lawyer is, like, to me, the biggest gauge Purdue has when he plays at his best, this team is, I think, the best team in the country. When he slides down and maybe his offense or lack thereof affects him on the defensive end, then I think that's where Purdue finds some of their struggles. I don't think you find a greater gauge with a, a really great team like Purdue than what you get in Fletcher Lawyer night in and night out. When he's really good, that team is really good. Completely. And, and look, it's Obviously, it's going to be him shooting the basketball well because when he's shooting the three ball well, it opens up everything for him. So that's that's the first part of it. It's defending well. It's doing a little bit of everything. I think the biggest key for them is keeping him 100% or as close to 100% healthy through the season because we know he's not necessarily the, the strongest guy on the floor. He's a little slight, 6'4", and he, he's every bit of 180 he can get to. You know, And so I think that was probably a lot of the issue last year was as they got down the stretch of his freshman season and they needed him to be a big-time player in some big-time moments, he just wasn't at his best physically. And so I think he's already better. He's already learned from that freshman year experience. But, no, 100%. When he plays well, this team plays well. And when he plays poorly, other guys now have to step up. And, look, that's why they're a good team because they have guys that are capable. Obviously, Lance Jones now on the team this season has made a difference. Mason Gillis is still a great energy guy and can hit a three and can make things happen. Miles Colvin can have his moments now and has really found a little bit more of a rhythm as a freshman and, and has done a good job of just kind of staying ready when his number's been called. But when you've got number two rocking in a game, it just makes a massive difference for what this team's ceiling looks like. And so this is a, a really good test for him, and it's a really good test for Braden Smith. Tough environment on the road. You've lost three or four to Indiana. Like this is a big game for Purdue in a lot of ways. And if those two guys show up, it's going to give their team the best chance to win. It's uh, Noah Eagle with us. I agree too with IU. I think Mbako, especially at home, the freshman Ooh. is such a big deal. And you know, you think about those three out of four wins for IU. So much of that directly involved the mere presence of Trace Jackson Davis. And while they have really good big guys in terms, certainly of college basketball at the highest level, Trace just he required so much focus on that other team and that yep. is that obviously you're going to miss somebody like that that's why you're looking for somebody like Mbako the freshman who has shown you he can be a top level scorer really needs to be later on tonight yeah I think that it goes without saying it's impossible to just replace Trace Jackson Davis he did so much on the floor like there's there's guys who are stars for their team because they're great scorers or they're great defenders, or they're great rebounders. He was packaged into one. He did everything. His fingerprints were all over the game. So now you have to, it's like Moneyball, the movie. You have to replace him in the aggregate, right? You have to kind of find different pieces that can do all the same things that he could just do singularly, which is hard. But I do think Mackenzie Mbako is starting to come into his own now as conference play rolls on. And the biggest thing that you hear from Mike Woodson, and even when we talked to Matt Painter, 
was his defense has just improved. And I think that was what was keeping him off the floor maybe a little bit early because we know how talented he is. You're not a top 10 recruit in the country unless you're uber talented. And you're probably a great offensive player because all kids now really focus offensively more than anything. Like It's not sexy to be a great defensive player in the AAU game or in the high school game eventually. It's enticing for programs to see guys who can do a little bit of everything with the ball in their hands. Can they handle? Can they shoot? Can they get to the rim? Can they get to the free throw line? Well, Mbako can do all that. So that was never a question. The question was always going to be how was his toughness and how was his defense? And that's what's improved the most. And now that opens up your offense because you're staying on the floor. You can get into a rhythm. You can kind of let the game come to you. And he's aggressive. And I like that out of a freshman. I like that out of a guy who maybe didn't start the year exactly like he expected to. But now he's up in double figures on the season, 10.2 points per game. He had a career high, obviously, against Minnesota, 19. And he's shooting the lights out from three. And they need that desperately right now. They need guys who can make open threes. So Mbaco clearly isn't scared of the moment. This game feels more so that it's going to have to be a big one from Khalil Ware just because of what you've got on the other side. I think Mbako is going to have to be big almost every night in a sense, but he's not going to have to put up 19 a night. He just has to play well. He has to make open shots. He has to remain aggressive and look to get his teammates involved, do all the little things he's been doing along with the scoring. But Khalil Ware to me, look, he's clearly taken a step forward as a sophomore now versus what he was at Oregon as a freshman last year. But 15 points, 9.6 rebounds per game. That's where he's at right now. Just based on his size and skill, just based on what he looks like moving forward as a prospect even, even if it's not at IU and it's in the NBA, he's so skilled, he's so impressive. This is a guy that should have the capability to dominate any, any kind of night. And to me, if you want to prove to NBA scouts that you should be a first-round pick, that you should be a guy that a team takes a chance on, what better way to prove that to go up against the reigning national player of the year in Zach Eady and win the matchup? And, and that's what I'm looking. What's the mentality out of him? Is he remaining aggressive? Does he take it personally? And if he does, that's where I think Indiana can be at their best tonight. Has uh, Hummel told you anything about the matchups, either broadcasting it or playing in it? <laughs> he said, especially, it's, it's actually, I didn't realize that this is his first time broadcasting this game at Assembly Hall. He's done Purdue, Indiana yeah. at Mackey. So he's never broadcast here. So I'm really more focused on <laughs> What is said to Robbie Hummel? And do I get to join in on all the people in Bloomington that are going to absolutely destroy him? Which I think I will. Yeah, are you going to roll some tape? You're going to roll, since you're a friend of this show, can you roll some tape? We'll play it back. I'll see what I can do. I'll see what I can do. Yeah, a little sneak record. Oh, man, it should be fun tonight. That's that's uh, Now, is this your first time in Assembly Hall doing a game? It is, which is pretty Holy pretty crap. amazing that this would be the first one. Yeah. Well, it's um, it, it is incredible. I mean, I grew up, you know, around the Bloomington area, and um, I didn't attend IU, went to Indiana State, but still, I, I know the legend of it. I've, I've been a part of many games. You mentioned the Kentucky IU game. I was obviously there for that. I was there for a lot of things over the years, and it's a hell of an environment. And it's just like we'll probably see later on this year. I don't know if you're doing the Purdue uh, IU rematch, but Mackey Arena is uh, as good as as advertised too with that home atmosphere. So yeah, you're going to be in for some fun tonight Noah you will oh I can't wait can't wait to uh to tip this thing off and let it rip so we'll have fun don't get out of town without Buffaloes man and tell the owner I said hello 
<laughs> I will. I will. That's a promise. No, I appreciate you, man. Have a great broadcast. All right. Thanks for having me. It is uh, Noah Eagle right there, uh, Peacock. Andy Moore, Automotive Group Hotline. We'll get to the mess that was Salt Lake City last night in just a second. But all this, Alex Golden of Setting the Pace, who joins us now, all this uh, Pascal Siakam conversation, to me, if, if there is no chance of extension, that around here is when the conversation ends. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's an interesting point of view. I mean, it's just... If I, I feel like Pascal's just kind of trying to position himself to, to get leverage with the Raptors because he can get more money with them. So I think it's kind of trying to force them a little bit to maybe keep him and re-sign him. But, but yeah, I think that if the Pacers do end up making this trade, they're not going to offer, I think, what, what people are expecting them to offer in Toronto. And it's going to come down to the down to the buzzers, how I'm, how I'm viewing this, JMV. I think it'll be like a – you know, uh, about an hour before the trade deadline, maybe the same day, just something like that. Because at that point, if they just let Pascal walk for nothing, that's the same scenario that's happened with multiple of their players the last couple of years, Fred Van Bleek, Kyle Lowry, Kawhi Leonard. So the Raptors really have their backs against the wall. Yeah. They're trying to make make more out of this, and I think really they can, they can get out of it. But the Pacers have to be smart, too, because, it, you know, it is a rental to a certain degree, but at the same time, Pascal Siakam – would would really help this team specifically at that four position. And I think the Pacers feel pretty confident in their organization, their coaching staff, and Tyrese Halliburton to at least persuade Pascal Siakam to strongly consider re-signing here if they did make that deal. So Alex Golden is setting the pace. I mentioned this earlier. Um, I, you, I don't want a, a rental property now for this group. And obviously, I, I don't want one later. Because I, I want I want this to be a, a destination. I know people kind of laugh about that. I mean, it's Indiana, destination, what are you talking about? No ocean, no golf, no mountains, all that stuff. But I want it because of Halliburton to be a destination. So not only do I kind of just look side-eyed, for example, at a rental possibility right now, but I look at it further down the road because even further down the road, you expect this group, along with Halliburton, to be more established. I just I want the Pacers to position themselves differently than we have seen most of the time in the past couple of decades. Yeah, I think that if the Pacers did make a trade for Pascal, that would be a little bit different than what we've seen from them normally. Um, Obviously, they did make the trade for Tyrese Halliburton, but we can talk about having cap space and free agents wanting to come here and Tyrese making this an attractive place to want to play. But the only thing they really have to show for that is Bruce Brown, who, who got signed to a huge deal that was definitely more than what, you know. Yeah, nobody knew Halliburton was here before earlier this season, though. I mean, truly. Right? Yeah. I mean, this is just the early stage. This is the infancy of it, right? Of what we're talking about. I think about. It's, still, it's still early. And I think that the Pacers kind of are ahead of schedule with Tyrese Halliburton. I think he's ascended so much that, you know, you beat Milwaukee four out of five games in the regular season. You split so far four games with Boston. You split so far with Philadelphia. I mean, do you feel like you're that far away if you're Indiana? I think that, honestly, I think they feel like they're a little bit closer than I think a lot of people realize. So there's no reason to rush into anything. And I don't think if they were to make a trade for Pascal Siakam, that necessarily means that they're rushing. But I just look at if they had a guy like Pascal Siakam on this team that could play with Miles and with Tyrese, 
there is a, there's a way that I could see them making it to the Eastern Conference Finals this year if everything clicks right. And I think, you know, it's it's one of those things where you don't want to put the cart before the horse. But at the same time, uh, you really have to kind of figure out, okay, when are they going to have an opportunity to go out and get somebody and have that cap space? Because they're going to end up having to pay some of these younger guys bigger contracts here within the next three to four years. And this might be a small window to get Pascal in a, in a contract maybe that's close to a max. I don't know exactly what that deal would be, but just because they traded for Pascal and re-signed him doesn't mean that he has to last that entire four-year contract either. They could flip him too before it, it expires. So I, I think that there's optionality still, but um, right now I think that they're in a spot where they're playing really good basketball. Do you really want to mess things up? I, I Listen, there's nobody that wants to win in the now more than me. Nobody out there. But I I don't think that you go into this without assurances. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and, and, and right. that's hard for me to say because a lot of what you just said makes sense. I, I just don't happen to think they're that close to that, even with Siakam and, and without assurances. I, I just can't do because you could really screw this thing up. And what in what ways are you saying they could screw it up? Are you saying that they were to trade like a Jarris Walker? I had no question. No. Well, yeah. I mean, well, I'll take this back too. I'll take this back because a lot of what I also read has Benedict Matherin as a part of it. In no way, shape, or form do I want him involved. I mean, if it's if it's like what normal Pacer fans, Alex, I guess would say is, well, if you can trade, you know, Buddy, and you can throw in this guy and and guys that they like, no doubt, but they don't really care or aren't as deeply invested as they are with others on the team. Then if it can work out like that, then so be it. But to me, the only thing that makes a lot of sense is also what Toronto gets in return for doing this, and I just don't see them jumping at a lot of these deals that make Pacer fans right now want to jump and dance. Yeah, I mean, the Pacer fans are not going to throw anything you know, that they feel is worth value to Toronto because they feel like it's such a rental. Yeah, But Toronto's not going to just let Pascal Siakam walk because the thing is, even if they don't find a trade they like at the deadline, they could always do a sign-in trade in the offseason. So, they have options. It's not like Toronto's sitting there like, oh, we have to make a deal by the deadline or we're going to lose them for nothing. And no, they they have options, I still think. And, and Pascal wants to be there. That's pretty obvious from, from everybody I've talked to and everything I've heard. Pascal wants to be in Toronto. Like, he really loves that organization. And it, it feels like to me that they're just really kind of stuck between do we want to bring him back? He's 29 years old. Or do we want to kind of embrace this youth movement with Scotty Barnes and R.J. Barrett and Emmanuel Quickly? So, that's that's where it's interesting. But, yeah, I mean, the Pacers right now, Jairus Walker, at this point, it, he's not getting significant playing time. He's 19, 20 years old. He's got a lot of potential. And I understand that you don't want to trade away a guy that you have team control of for the next seven years for four months of a guy that could maybe help you get into the second or third round of a playoff series but not ultimately get you to where you want to get to. So I understand the concerns with that, and I think Ben Matherin is completely off the table. I think they would be more open to listening to Jairus Walker trades just because uh, Pascal would be playing the same position as him. But uh, I, I do know that Toronto, from from people that have reported this too, that they really like Andrew Nimhart. And so if Andrew Nimhart is the best piece they can get back by the deadline to to get you know to move off of Pascal Siakam. Do the Pacers really allow Andrew Nimhard to kind of be what holds them up for making a deal like this? I don't know if they would or not, but I know they like Nimhard. He's on a good deal. But at the same time, 
you can make the case that he's been, you know, worse than T.J. McConnell this year overall as the backup point guard. So uh, it's it's a really tough conversation because I just feel like Pascal Siakam is so good, and people here I think are probably a little bit underrating what Pascal would bring to this team because you're talking about an all-NBA forward that fills position of need this team has not had in, I can't even tell you the last time they had a power, like Thad Young, but he's an all-NBA player that like Thad Young. So it's just, it's a tough spot. It's uh, Alex Golding said the pace. He's with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I, I get what you're saying. I am. I just think that a lot of Pacer fans have probably seen more about Matherin in this mm. in what Toronto would want than anything else. And I think that's where everybody mm. balks. I'll, I'll give you a great example. Uh, this Pincus guy, right? If it's Buddy Hill, yeah. Bruce Brown in a first-round pick, for, I'm, I'm doing that now. I will yeah, do that yeah. right now. But I'm not yeah. doing anything that involves Matherin, and I would be – it's not a deal breaker, but I would be skeptical to do anything still that involves Walker just because of his age. But I would do if if this pinkest guy is anywhere in the neighborhood, I would do something like that. Yeah, I mean, Jamie, let's be honest here. If it was only Buddy Hill and Bruce Brown for Pascal Siakam and that would get the deal done, that trade would have been done three weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, that's true. That's, that's true. That's that, very there's true. a reason why. Yeah. I think that might be like the Pacers' first <laughs> offer. Like, okay, we'll do this for this. They're like, yeah, well, we want to do this. I bring yeah. that up, too, Alex, because that's 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 what you see. Your Pacer fans, it's just like any trade that you want to make for the team that you love. It always has you giving away something easy to part with and getting, you know, you know, getting back just great return on investment. And that normally is not reality as you stayed right yeah and i mean you got to remember like it's negotiation tactics like what's being put out there for everybody to hear is to get people talking it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's what's actually happening behind the scenes sure maybe the raptors did call and ask for ben or jarrett and the pacers probably said okay uh you know we're going to hang the phone up on that one you know that's not going to happen and that's kind of get what, what gets put out there so it's like i i don't really know what the exact deal would look like i mean everybody was shocked when the pacers got tyrese Halliburton. i think that's kind of how you have to look at this it's like the kings for for weeks and months up to the deadline said that Halliburton and fox were off the table they were going to rebuild around them and then all of a sudden you see a trade happen when the right deal comes in but nobody thought sabonis was really on the move everybody kept expecting miles turner to be the guy so i think that you know you just kind of have to sit here and wait and and it'll all play out I do think Pascal Siakam is traded by the deadline. I do feel like Indiana is the favorite to get him, but I think that it might be uh, a deal that maybe people aren't expecting to happen. But uh, in terms of like the players that are involved, I think it could be a little bit different than people realize. And I, I just, I don't know. I think the Pacers want to win a little bit more than, than maybe fans are were expecting, I guess, at the beginning of the year, because at this point, I mean, with Tyrese Halbert and playing the way that he's playing, it does feel like this team is is in a much better spot than they were just even a year ago. Well, listen, winning right now, that's what I'll – if you listen to a moment of me, that's that's yeah. what I want because I make fun of entertaining losses and trade value and yeah. draft capital and all that crap. I, mm-hmm. I just don't want them to hose themselves. And I, I would want – there are some deals out there. I just gave you the easy one, right? But there are some out there where you would absolutely have to have some reassurance that this guy is going to return and, and be a part of this. And maybe you're right. I mean, maybe you get here and you play and you go, oh, wow, you know what? I really like it here. I think I'm going to stay. I'm going to make this home. But there's also the opportunity where you get a lot of money someplace else and you like where you're going someplace else more than here. I just – 
yeah, I just I I, I would want to make sure that you're, yeah. if you're making this investment for some of these guys, yeah, and again, I always bring up Matherin, and maybe he's not going to be a part of it, but you see his name still all the time. I wouldn't touch that with a ten foot pole. This one. No, no, I don't. I don't think Matherin's going to be involved in any any trade this season. Um, I, I'm still kind of monitoring the fit with Matherin, just in terms of how he fits in with Tyrese, because it was, you know, it wasn't great early on in the season when he was starting next to him, and it was trying to figure things out. I think just that whole start, entire starting five just really were, were trying to figure each other out. But they ended up making that move to put Buddy Hill back into the starting five to give them the spacing they need, and and Matherin really has thrived off the bench with uh, with T.J. McConnell, and it's because he can kind of be the focal point offensively where when he's playing with Tyrese, he has to be, kind of be the secondary guy. And so far, it hasn't really, like, he hasn't really proven he can do that yet. It's still really early in his career, so I don't think the Pacers are going to punt on that anytime soon. But you can just tell where it's a little clunky at times with those two, just trying to figure things out. But, you know, overall, I think Matherin has really grown as a shooter this year. I think he's shooting 40% from three and, like, catching shoots he's gotten better at. And I know that's something they're trying to preach for him to get better at. So, yeah, I don't think they're moving him. But, you know, Brian Winhorst said this, and I, and I agree. Like, the Knicks making that trade for OG and Anobi, right? Like, they had to have a wink-wink deal with OG and Anobi. Like, you're going to re-up here with us. You're not going to opt out of the player option and leave us for nothing. Uh, or if he was and there was no, like – you know, gentleman's handshake or a wink week behind the scene. Like, you know, they don't, they don't make that deal where they're trading two huge assets and quickly in Barrett. So I think if Indiana did make a trade for Pascal and they let go of maybe a Jairus Walker, they would have to have a wink week agreement with Pascal Siakam, you know, before they made that deal, hey, just because there's yeah. no way you can do that without it. Hey, Alex. So Nick just sent me this message via X and he says, Jairus Walker is terrible. He was a bad pick and is wanting him to be traded. I Honestly, other than the fact he doesn't get meaningful, and I mean meaningful moments in games type of clock, that's the only aspect that I see. I mean, I don't see him being terrible. I just don't see how we're really able to gauge it other than, all right, should you not be, as a lottery selection, getting more time and more valued minutes than you do? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great point. I don't think he's terrible by any stretch of the means. I just think that he's really young, and he really has a long way to go in terms of development. And that's my only big hang-up here is, like, are the Pacers willing to wait for him to develop into what they want him to be over the next four to five years, or are they ready to start pushing forward and winning more now, which we've talked about? And is Jarrett going to be up to speed, and is Carlisle going to trust him enough to play him, you know? Still, even in the game last night against Utah, he still had some gambles that Rick Carlisle wants him to not do as much. And it's it's just a learning process for a young guy. But I did think it was interesting. You have three starters down in, in last night's game against Utah. There's 15 guys on the roster and, and that are playing on the 15-man roster. He's basically the 14th man in the rotation right now. I yeah. mean, it's, yeah. it's tough. And I, and I think that, you know, Obi Toppin has played pretty well, especially off the bench. I feel like he's done a really good job. So, I just keep thinking to myself, if for some reason Pascal and Obi Toppin are, or excuse me, not Pascal, if Jarris and Obi aren't involved in any trade for Pascal Siakam, and then you bring Siakam here, where is the playing time for Jarris at in that point if you've got Obi Toppin on the roster still too? So I don't know. I just I feel like at this point he the Pacers were really active and looking to trade that seventh overall pick when they had it. I mean, we heard their names a ton looking to get better. Now, I don't know if they really wanted to go all in for a draft pick, but uh, that's all just rumors and hearsay. But I, 
I still think they believe in Jairus. They don't want to just throw him away in the first year without really seeing what he can do. But I'm, I'm just a little bit skeptical on how long they're willing to wait for him to develop and if he can catch on quickly and fit in with this team right away and help them start winning. This is going to sound really bad. It's almost like a, a backhanded compliment here. And Alex Golden setting the pace joins us. But it is amazing to witness how boring the Pacers have become without Halliburton. They're boring as hell yeah. without him. Yeah, it's a tough watch. I mean, like, yeah. the game in Atlanta was fun because they were hitting everything. But if they're not hitting everything, it's tough. I mean, they, they played all right in Denver. It, it was competitive. They had some nice moments there. But, you know, they just couldn't hang with Denver towards that, you know, the end of the third, beginning of the fourth, and then just kind of got away from them. But last night was the toughest watch I've seen in a long Woo, time. Man, it was. Team. You got me. Uh, you, you're not lying. Yes. Yeah. It's, asking fans to stay up late for that game was tough. I mean, I did it. I was very <laughs> regretful this morning. Well, we're nerds, we so we do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, recorded a podcast after I was hopping in bed around one o'clock. I didn't do that, myself. but yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was it was not worth it. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you know, thankfully they have two days off, and hopefully they can get healthy. Like when you're not having Bruce or Aaron out there, and yeah, Nimhart has really struggled. I hate that. I hate to say it because I really like him, but he has not played well. Had a lot of injuries this year. It's just, I don't know, this this team without Halliburton, man, he is definitely the engine that makes that car run. And when he's down, you feel it. He makes everybody, I mean, everybody else better, Alex. And then he gives you 25. He gives you 25 yeah. a game and makes everybody else better. I mean, it is incredible. And we're seeing that real life. Hey, man, I'm going to get you back on for an extended period of time. I do have to run here. But uh, tell everybody about the podcast and what you got up there right now, buddy. No, I appreciate it. Yeah, just check us out. Setting the Pace, the Pacers podcast, wherever you get your podcasts out. we got a lot of stuff coming up. We're pretty much a daily now. So Monday through Friday have episodes for you guys recapping a lot of games and just covering the team in general. And we got a lot of content on Siakam if you want to hear some deep dives and other people's opinions besides uh, mine and my co-host, Mike Focci. But uh, I also have a blog that I started called theblueandgolden.substack.com. It's free of charge. Uh, there is an option if you do want to, you know, be a paid subscriber just to help support me out. But no pressure on that. Just try to do, uh, you know, game recaps, that kind of thing. Point out some film every once in a while and just dive in a little bit deeper in some written work. So that would be awesome if you guys would like to check out my work at the blue and golden I'm really happy for you, brother. You know that, man. We'll keep doing it. Keep on keeping on. Yes, sir. I appreciate it, man. We'll talk soon. Joining us now on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline is the broadcaster of the year for the state of Indiana, Greg Rakestraw. Congratulations on that honor. That's well done. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, equal congratulations go to uh, Kyle Nenrip, yep. who is the uh, NSMA, that's the National Sports Media Association, Sports Writer of the Year. And if I'm included in company with him, uh, I feel pretty honored about that. So, are you going to that big Winston-Salem get-together this summer? I am. Um, The the folks that organize this, I I think, have an idea of what the business is about because they put it on June 30th and July 1st when (laughs) probably about the least amount of stuff is going on as possible. So, the vast majority of award winners can show up. So, amazingly, that hits kind of a, a rare slow time of the year for me. So, me and the misses are North Carolina bound. Oh, at some point man, today. well done. You're not going to be too far from what was made to be Mayberry, North Carolina. Mount Airy, North well, Carolina, is not too far down the road. I think I have called you before. So for five years, I was the voice of the Division Two World Series. Yep. 
which was played in Cary, North Carolina. And my road trip to get down there, and Cary is between uh, Raleigh and Durham, uh, and so you would pass through Winston-Salem, but you would see Pilot Mountain, you would see Mount Airy as you drive down the other I-74, yep. just as you cross North Carolina, North Carolina. So I will, I will respond with a similar phone call, text, or on-air shout-out when I am passing what is clearly like a mecca for you in oh, Northwest North back Carolina. In tw- uh, 2003, we stayed at the Mayberry Hotel on our way to the Outer Banks, and it was a thrill of a lifetime, Greg. Did you get your – now, is there a Floyd's Barbershop where you can get your haircut? There is. Um, it was an unfortunate set of circumstances. I drove down the wrong way on a one-way in downtown That's Mount Airy. So it, had Barney Fife been around, I would have certainly received a citation. Let's say you and Otis are going to be spending some quality time together to keep doing <laughs> yeah. that, bud. Right down the wrong stinking way. Right downtown there, too. It was uh, rather ridiculous. But, no, nah, it's, it's a, that's a great area, too. Like Winston-Salem, that's where Wake Forest is located. You yeah. mentioned Pilot Mountain, about 30 miles down the road. But uh, it's a great area in North Carolina right there. Well, I agree. And I, I loved the time. So I got to do two baseball events there for several years. The Division Two World Series, which was in the Raleigh-Durham area, and then I got to do the American Legion World Series for four years, which is in Shelby, North Carolina, which is an actual place. Um, who was Danny McBride's character? That I, I'm space Kenny Powers. Yes. Uh, that, that that hailed from Shelby. Shelby's yeah. real. Kenny is not. But the <laughs> love for the American Legion World Series in that town absolutely is. And, so I, got to, I used to spend like two weeks of my summer in North Carolina and thoroughly enjoyed it. I uh, grew up with about 25 Kenny Powers. Down where I'm from, though. I'm a... <laughs> you think Lanesville's any different? <laughs> yeah. So I have a lot of them back then, no doubt. Hey, uh, give me your thoughts on, on tonight down in Bloomington, too. And I kind of mentioned this as this is an absolute in terms of getting on the resume for IU. Um, it is still a rivalry, and you want to win, and you got a couple of losses in the Big Ten if you're Purdue, so it's important. But this would seem to me to be an opportunity that IU could not let slide past later on tonight. You agree? You just hit the key word, opportunity. This is your chance. And, and I have been critical of Indiana, but let's acknowledge what they have done well. And last year that was beat Purdue. That's a heck of an accomplishment, even though they were a first-round exit. They're a really good basketball team. So I, I'm never on as much on the must-win bandwagon as you are, um, but, but this would be a heck of a chance to finally kind of put a map in your tournament resume if you get a W tonight if you're uh, Mike Woodson's team. All right. How do you go about it? Where, where's the level of importance? Because we talk about all the time, you know, three-point shooting or jump shooting ability and the guards. But I think we can also easily lose sight of what you're going to need down low because you expect to get it on a night-in and night-out basis. However, if you don't get it on a night like tonight, you could get buried, buried really by this Boilermaker team rather easily. And that's frankly what makes those two wins last year all the more impressive is that from a matchup standpoint, it's not a great matchup for Indiana. You know, what has given Purdue fits the couple of times they have lost? Three-point shooting. What does Indiana not do well? Now, again, they're doing it better as of late, but it's just not something that they emphasize as much. Um, Indiana tends to be a pound-the-rock, get-at-the-rim team. What does Purdue have the ability to take away because of Zach Eady? Exactly that. So, Three-point shots are an absolute must and necessity. Doesn't mean you got to fire them up 25, 30 times like some of the other teams do, but you've got to be efficient and you've got to you know 
take advantage of the opportunities you can get uh, if you're the Hoosiers from outside the arc tonight. Greg Rakestraw is on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I, I've seen this. I actually was talking about this, I, I think, last week in terms of anticipating this game and then brought it up yesterday, and I've seen it also a couple of different times. Does a guy like, for example, C.J. Gunn get more clock tonight because you talk about Smith and Lawyer and Jones and what they can have with those three guards in the backcourt? Does that put more of a premium you think on a guy like cj gunn i like to see cj gunn get more playing time period so that he can help um can be streaky as a shooter but athletically and as a wing defender i absolutely think he can be helping this team so yes the matchup suits him but uh i'd prefer to play him because the day ends and why more than anything else yeah when you look at it too um the xavier johnson in in Six years, you you expect more. That leadership hasn't been there. The play hasn't been there. Most often than not, he's been injured. What do you make of him if he gets you know a substantial opportunity, which is expected later on tonight? Is is this something that could help this team that is highly necessary in your opinion, especially offensively from this group? Of course it is, and this is what you're hoping for him is what coaches at every level of college basketball are hoping for because we're in, the, in, in this unique window where guys have played five and six and seven years and, and they're supposed to be grown men. And, and, and Xavier seemingly has regressed at times this year for this Indiana team. And again, you know, injuries are one thing, but, but just not acting right or, or, or not playing like such an experienced guy has been such a problem. Um, there potentially is something – for being in a place too long and, and just being tired of the four walls around you and, and getting tired of hearing the same voice. But, frankly, the programs that usually are successful, whether it's high major, mid-major, low major, are getting it done because they've got guys that are 50-year seniors or grad transfers or grad students that have been there, done that, and had some life experiences. So that's what makes the way that he has stepped back all the more puzzling. Uh, when he's been on the floor so far this year. He's Greg Rexstra on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Most often than not, when you bring up Purdue, um, especially talking about what you hope to get from them, you talk about their guards. And I just mentioned the three guards in that situation. But at the top of the list, most important for Purdue, it starts with Zach Eady. We know that. But in second place, a runner-up, is it the type of whistle that he gets? regardless of the situation is that second most important with this team in mind i honestly it's it's always important but i think so much of it now is the maturation of the guards you know we talked about some lack of maturity at times from xavier johnson well we have seen that maturity from braden smith from fletcher lawyer because the new names that had been brought in uh by matt pander to bolster that guard unit and so to me the most important thing is the, the difference between the freshman guards that played against Indiana last year in Smith and Lawyer to being sophomore guards playing against Indiana and, frankly, not having to deal with a guy like Jalen hood uh from last year. There's, there's not that guy that exists on Indiana's roster. That's important, too. So the caliber of whistle that Zach Eady gets is always important. But to me, the biggest thing in the non-Zach Eady category is are, are Smith and Lawyer going to play like, frankly, we've seen them play all year which honestly is a very good thing for for, for, uh, for the Boilermakers. Yeah. One thing you know that's going to happen, Greg, in closing with this, is you know what you're going to get from Assembly Hall. You know the juice this team is going to receive from them home crowd. 
but you don't know what you're going to get from these guys. And let's start with Mbako because he has a, a unique game that I think could make a tremendous splash against the Boilers if he can knock down some shots, get that early confidence. Where does he factor in to this game to you as far as IU maintaining contact and possibly upsetting the Boilers tonight? Listen, I think Indiana is going to maintain contact because it's Indiana Purdue. I think Indiana is going to maintain contact because it's Assembly Hall. Um, and, and there was a, a, a post. I think the guy is the beat writer for the uh, Illini, uh, for whatever the paper is in, in Champaign Urbana, uh, that you know kind of notated, you know, hey, what are the toughest home arena environments in the Big Ten? Mackey one and Assembly Hall two. So Indiana is going to maintain contact. If Mbako can play like he has, has, has played more so as of late, absolutely he is an X factor. Um, I, I think Renew, I wouldn't say get canceled out, but Renew's game, you think Zach Eady can check him. Mbako's got a little bit more flexibility where he could be a problem for Purdue in the way these teams match up tonight. All right, Butler on the road at Xavier, Greg. 6.30 tonight for the 11-6, in the Big East Dogs. And Missouri State and Indiana State. Indiana State 7-0 and at home, coming off a demolition of Belmont. 7 o'clock from the Holman Center later on tonight. A lot of what we thought Indiana State could do in the Mo Valley so far, that's what Indiana State is doing in the Mo Valley. Correct, and I think the loss at Drake is almost a free pass loss. You know, that's the other team that is thought to be on equal footing, uh, and they were the favorite coming in, um, in the Missouri Valley. In other words, you know, I, I almost think Indiana State has to run the table to be a, 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 an NCAA tournament team that isn't an automatic qualifier. Um, and so almost everybody else you play, and especially at home, you have to check those boxes. Um, you still feel a whole lot better if you win three games in three days in St. Louis and not leave it up to the committee. Um, but but the loss at Drake is kind of one of the few kind of free pass losses you would get. Do I think Indiana State's going to be 19-1 in the Valley? Probably not. The league's too good. The road trips are too strenuous. You're going to lose one or two more games likely. But I don't think that really dings the resume of Indiana State. Now it's taking care of business against Missouri State coming up tonight. In terms of Butler, again, what we would say about Butler is almost exactly what we would say about Indiana, uh, and maybe even more so in the Big East this year. Maybe there's more quality teams atop the Big East than there are the Big Ten. In other words, you've got chances to get important quality wins if you're Butler. But you got to stay on the north side of 500, I think, in league play to be an NCAA tournament team. And, and that's the challenge that Butler faces tonight. Yeah, it um, last couple have been uh, certainly. Yeah, I think in in terms of this weekend and then going back to that UConn game have been uh, difficult for Thad and yeah. company, no doubt. You, you make it a heck of a lot. I don't want to say easy on yourself, but uh, you you stay within range by getting this win in Cincinnati coming up later on tonight against uh, Xavier. Greg Rakestraw, he is the sportscaster of the year in the state of Indiana on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Congratulations once again, man. I'm happy for you. You know that. Thank you. I pre- well, first of all, I always appreciate your friendship and appreciate that. Secondly, will you be in studio tomorrow? Uh, yes, I will. Then I will see you tomorrow night because I am following you on the airwaves of the fan tomorrow night at 6 o'clock. What are you doing tomorrow night at 6 o'clock? 
So tomorrow night is the start of On the Horizon Radio. Nice. It is a weekly radio show dedicated to the Horizon League men's and women's tournaments that will be here for the semifinals and finals at the Indiana Farmers Coliseum March 11th and 12th. So I get an hour talking about the Horizon League each of the next nine weeks, seven of those being on Saturday. So uh, there will be part of that cool crossover action at you know, 552 every Wednesday on the program for the next several weeks. Nice job out of you. All right. Thank you. We'll see you in here coming up tomorrow, Greg. Enjoy the night. Congratulations again. Thanks, buddy.